athletic competition. It can easily be broken down into two parts. The minutes or hours it takes to complete the event. Then weeks, months, and years of joy or heartbreak. Finally, the decades to analyze and debate it. From the press box to press row, Donald Ware will break it all down for you with an in-depth look at historically black college athletics, as well as the biggest news stories and newsmakers of the day. It's time to talk the talk with those who walk the walk. From the press box to press row, here's your host, Donald Ware. You know I ain't come to play the TD, snapping off the rip. Yo, You're locked favorite. into the dopest show on radio from the press box to press row. I am your host, Donald Ware. Holy pack today here on the program. We're going to talk some NBA. Mike Wallace, senior editor of Grind the City Media, going to join us on the program. Also, we're going to talk with Tennessee State head men's basketball coach Penny Collins on the program. The Tigers off to the really good start on the season. Double-digit wins, uh, doing pretty well in the OVC. And so Penny Collins, the head men's basketball coach at, of course, Tennessee State, going to join us here on the program. Going to talk some National Football League uh, in addition to some playoff matchups this weekend. I really want to get into uh, the situation or the uh, more so the lack of black head coaches, the lack of minority head coaches in the National Football League, which uh, it continues to really be an ongoing problem. Uh, the Rooney Rule was uh, was was put in place to, in fact, um, uh, make it so that minority candidates can uh, get those interviews. Uh, and otherwise, um, minority candidates may not be interviewed. I mean, you can look at, um, you know, someone or a couple of people that have benefited from the Rooney Rule. I mean, I don't know if I, mean, I, I, I guess you could say Mike Tomlin benefited from the Rooney Rule, but then ultimately the Rooney Rule was named for Mr. Rooney at the time was, of course, the um, the owner of the Steelers. So, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess I guess in essence, I mean, you can look at Raheem Morris benefited from the Rooney Rule. Um, but, you know, obviously something is not right. Um, and I don't know that I'm going to blame it on the Rooney Rule. Like, you know, I look at a, 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 I look at it a couple of different ways. Like, for instance. You have to interview a minority coaching candidate to satisfy what the league has put in place with respect to the Rooney Rule. You, so uh, before you hire a coach, you have to you have to interview a minority um, candidate. And let, let's take let's look at the Cowboys as a prime example. I mean, the Cowboys um, ultimately um, decided. Uh, to hire Mike McCarthy as uh, their new head football coach. That's fine. They had to interview a minority candidate, and they interviewed Marvin Lewis. Now, Marvin Lewis has been had been the head coach of the, the Cincinnati Bengals for, I don't know what, in excess of 10 years. And this is the thing. My thing with the Cowboys, and I like the way, you know, I like the way Jerry Jones, Jerry Jones, 
to me is about two things. He's about money and he's about winning. Okay. And so I have no bones about that. You know, he goes against the grain a lot of times. I mean, he's a big and the Cowboys are big supporters of the Salvation Army when the league as a whole um, supports the United Way. So I like the fact that a lot of times he likes to go against the grain as well. But to me, I I don't think the Cowboys had any. I mean, there was there was they were not going to hire Marvin Lewis as their new head football coach. So why interview? Why interview Marvin Lewis uh, as your candidate to satisfy the Rooney rule? You know, the Rooney again, the Rooney rule was put into place so that um, minority coaches, maybe not as well known, could at least be able to go through the process, whether or not uh, a, a coach would be hired is a whole nother conversation, but at least. That coach could go through the process. Their name is out there and it maybe puts them on track to, in fact, uh, ultimately one day become a head coach. So to interview Marvin Lewis, who already uh, is an established coach, I mean, I don't, you know, to, in essence, satisfy the Rooney rule, I think was a big mistake, you know, by the Cowboys. But I mean, it's a much bigger problem and I'm going to really talk about it today. Here on the program, your participation here on from the press box to press row always warranted. Hit me up via Twitter at box to row, B-O-X-T-O-R-O-W or on Facebook, B-O-X, the number two R-O-W. You can also hit me up personally on my personal Twitter account at Dware one. Thank you to all of the outstanding affiliates around the country that carry from the press box to press row. Got some great affiliates uh, for instance, WFSK in Nashville carries the program. WRVS in Elizabeth City, North Carolina carries the program. KTTP out of Alexandria, Louisiana carries the program. Just so many great affiliates around the country that carry the program. Those that listen to us on Sirius XM channels 141 and 142. And those that listen to us around the world at BoxToRow.com. In the National Football League right now, and, it, and it's an issue. It's a big issue. I can remember being, you know, at uh, it, when the the Super Bowl was played in Miami and all the festivities around it. In this, you know, it, it, that was uh, I remember a really big topic of conversation during that time uh, and the Rooney Rule. Um, but you know, listen, we have four minority head coaches in the National Football League. You have uh, three of them um, that are black. You know, Ron Rivera, uh, newly hired by the the Washington Redskins as their new head football coach. Um, And then, of course, uh, when you look around the league, you have Mike Tomlin, um, who's with the Steelers. You have also uh, you have uh, Brian Flores, who is with the Miami Dolphins. Uh, And then also um, you have um, Anthony Lynn, Anthony Lynn is with the San Diego Chargers. So out of 32 teams, you have four minority coaches. Three of those coaches are black. I think that is a huge problem, and especially as we move into this new decade, uh, we move into 2020 now, like we've gone backwards uh, in terms of this situation. I mean, you have, listen, you you know, you got qualified candidates out there. You have like an Eric Bieniemy uh, from, the co- uh, uh, from the Chiefs um, who deserves 
an opportunity. You know, I, I, I and and I think J- we didn't have a chance to touch on it last week with Jarrett Bell, but I was in total. Uh, you know, he he mentioned Leslie Frazier, who was now the defensive coordinator for the Buffalo Bills. He had a three-year window with the the Vikings. The first year, uh, they won three games. The next year, the Vikings ultimately went to the playoffs. That first year was a rebuilding year. Went to the playoffs. Um, uh, I believe the year that uh, that Adrian Peterson rushed for 2,000 yards, and then the next year was like 5, 10, and 1, and he ultimately uh, got fired. And I can remember writing about it at the time um, with respect to Leslie Frazier, writing about it in, in Jet, and this was back in 2013, and the serious problem that the National Football League has uh, in terms of hiring minority head coaches, hiring black head coaches and I think you still have a candidate out there like a Leslie Frazier who I think still deserves an opportunity um, as well but really I'm going to tell you where this begins to me where this begins is at the collegiate level because the NFL and where it stands with black head coaches with minority head coaches mirrors where the FBS level is more specifically. Obviously, the FCS level is saved by the fact that you have 21 historically black colleges and university, of which uh, the majority of those coaches, um, if not, I'm just trying to think, the majority of those coaches right now are all black head coaches. So it's saved at the FCS level via HBCUs, but then at the FBS level where, uh, uh, where listen, this is where we're going with the National Football League. I mean, not so much this year in terms of the hirings, but you look at the last couple of years, I mean, and, and, and really, I mean, you look at Matt Rule. So Matt Rule comes from Baylor, turns Baylor around two years. He's off with a big contract, uh, I might add. You look at uh, Cliff Kingsbury uh, from last year, uh, you know, was 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 a coordinator. I mean, was a, I mean, was a coordinator on the collegiate level, uh, no less, and got a head coaching job. Um, so I'm, I'm 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 not, and I and I say that to say that you know where there, there's a there is a pool from which NFL teams hire new coaches, and part of that pool is in. Kali is at the college level and more specifically at the FBS level where there is uh, a lack, uh, a, a probably more of a lack of black coaches at the FBS level, head coaches, that is, at the FBS level than even in college. So I think that's where it starts or part of the problem, because. You know, if you get that head coaching experience at the FBS level, you have that success. It leads you to um, the National Football League one way or the other. It used to be, you know, it was sort of a a ladder and a stepping stone. You see now, you know, you have guys that are coming right from FBS to head coaches uh, in the National Football League. used to be you maybe come in, you become a coordinator, you know, you get that NFL experience, and then you, you know, so you you sort of clump, you ascend to being a head coach. And that's where to me the problem lies is at, part of the problem i should say uh lies at the collegiate level and the lack of black coaches the lack of minority coaches that you have at the fbs level and i think you know if you're the national football league i think that you know th- there there is in the in the collegiate ranks an nfl minority um collegiate a coaching deal where you go and you're part of a, I don't want to say a clinic, but, you know, 
some some it's not a clinic, but it's one of those deals where you, um, you know, you in it, it and it allows you um, to learn more about the National Football League. They have internships and all of those kind of things that a lot of the coaches take advantage of. But I think that the National Football League needs to partner with these HBCUs more specifically, because, I mean, if you, there's a you know, if you look at. Over time, there have only been two HBCU graduates that have been head coaches in the National Football League. Art Shell, who was the, the first black coach uh, in the National Football League in the modern era. And then, of course, the aforementioned Leslie Frazier. Uh, uh, you look at Leslie Frazier, uh, a, a graduate of Alcorn State, uh, and you look at uh, at Art Shell, a graduate of then Maryland State, now UMES. So, there needs to, be, I think, maybe be some kind of partnership um, because you can, you know, what says what is it to say you can't come from the FCS level to be um, at least uh, a, a coordinator in the National Football League and then ultimately a head coach? I mean, I look I can think of, you know, Jimmy Johnson. Um, uh, who uh, started, he played at Howard, played for the Washington Redskins. Forget, you know, he started out, I think, as like the offensive coordinator at Shaw, uh, ultimately went on to Texas Southern and then went on to be at least a tight ends coach um, with the Minnesota Vikings last that I knew. So, you know, there's a serious problem there with the National Football League, um, with the lack of minority coaches, uh, lack of blackhead coaches, and it needs to be addressed Needs to be, I think, some kind of partnership. I mean, what greater pool to pull from than from HBCUs? Need to do something uh, to get this thing going. Um, I'm going to have more thoughts on that still to come here on the program. Mike Wallace, uh, the senior editor of Grind City Media. Up next, Penny Collins, the head men's basketball coach at Tennessee State. For the press box to press row and box to row.com, your HBCU sports leader. Let's continue here on from the press box to press row. The Tennessee State Tigers, double digit wins on the season. And I tell you what, in his second season as the head men's basketball coach of Tennessee State is Penny Collins. And the Tigers have turned things around in the 2019-20 season as he joins us here on From the Press Box to Press Row. Happy New Year to you, Coach Collins, and welcome back to the program. Man, happy New Year to you as well. Thanks for having me back. Absolutely. For you, double-digit wins so far. Obviously still a lot of OVC play left. Your thoughts on the season to this point? Well, I'm, a, I'm extremely proud of our guys. I, I think we had a, a really good non-conference, uh, tough schedule, and for us to, to, to put together eight wins out of that schedule, I was really pleased with that. And, uh, you know, we've gotten off to a, a good start in the OVC play by taking care of business at home, going to win up. Yeah, you know, you're undefeated at home. I mean, I think that's the great thing. And to your point, um, in, a, in a time when a lot of mid-majors are playing sort of a softer schedule at home, you're not, you're going out. Um, playing teams, Cal Poly, you've won three straight, as a matter of fact, at home. Talk about, you know, playing at home and having the su- uh, success you've had so far, being undefeated at home so far in the season. Yeah, uh, well, when I got the job, I, I, I wanted Gentry Center to be uh, the toughest place in the OBC to play. You know, we have a, a really good fan base here in Nashville and with our TSU alumni and fans. And uh, when, our, when our fans come out and support our program, our, our guys, they, they match the level. Um uh, 
of, of uh, energy that our fans gives us. So, uh, you know, we've continued on that path of, of making Gentry the toughest place to play. And when our students get back next Thursday against Morehead State, I'm hoping for an even more exciting environment. You you got more of a veteran team this year, right? Yeah, um, even though we have a, a lot of new guys on our roster, our team is uh, comprised of a lot of transfers, a couple grad transfers, and, and guys that have, had, that have experience. So we have a, a older team with full of juniors and seniors. Yeah, one of those transfer guys, Wesley Harris, played at West Virginia uh, on last year as a graduate student. Talk about his play. He's leading your team in scoring so far this season. Yeah, we, you know, we have a, a very balanced team, and Wesley happens to be the, the guy that's leading us right now in scoring. Uh, you know, he, he, came, he comes in with a lot of experience. He's started on the Sweet 16 team at West Virginia and played a lot last year as a junior for West Virginia. And uh, I've been, you know, watching him play since he was a junior college player in Northeast Mississippi. So he's coming in with a lot of experience. He's played in a lot of big-time environments, and uh, he's helped us win a lot of games, and, and we, we plan to continue to do that for the OBC play. Penny Collins is the head men's basketball coach at Tennessee State in his second season as he joins us here on From the Press Box to Press Row. You know, I look at this program, followed the program for quite some time, some ups and downs you can look at. You know, Robert Covington going back some years now, of course, with the Minnesota Timberwolves. You can even look at the team going back maybe four or five years that came to came here to Raleigh uh, to NC State and lost by 10 points in overtime, was very competitive, had a senior-laden team uh, that year. I think it was maybe 2015, something like that. But w- what were some of the challenges presented to you taking over this program last year? Well, you know, just like any, any new coach coming into a job, uh, you got to. It takes time to put your, you know, your culture in place. And uh, you know, we got off to a really good start last year, and I feel like we we, we put that in place. Uh, we we did flip the roster a little bit to try to get a little bit uh, different type of talent and character guys in our program. And even still, that we're off to a decent start. Um, the, the real fruits of our label will continue just to get better and better and better as the years go on. So we really we really go out and recruit character and get the right kind of people in our program. And as long as these guys take discipline to the program, we got a chance to be good. What was last year like? I mean, not you know, a limited. Hand, you're at double digit wins. You had single digit wins last year. You had been a winner. You know, you played at Belmont right there in Nashville. You, you know, in terms of your coaching, uh, you you had been used to winning. So what what was sort of last year? How, how you know how maybe I don't know. If frustration was the is the right word, but you know what was last year like for you? Well, you know, I went in with high expectations. Every year that I coach, any year I play, my expectation is to win a championship. So my expectation last year was to compete for OBC championship. And you kind of you kind of see right away where um, you kind of kind of taper back your expectations and kind of take it for game to game and half to half and try to put special things together with your guys. But last year's team and, and the season itself, it wasn't as stressful and, and frustrating as some people may think because we had so many injuries. A lot of people don't really realize we lost like six guys to injuries throughout the year at some point, and we never, ever played with our entire team the entire year. But those guys fight and clawed and gave me everything they had. And even with all that being said, had we won one more game, we'd have finished in fifth place. So I was pleased on our effort. We just didn't get what we wanted ultimately. But um, I, I didn't leave the season with this just um, level of stress and frustration that I, I never had before. I felt like those guys gave me what they had, and, and they were the cornerstone of what we're building today. Yeah, and, and, and the, I think the thing about that also, you mentioned sort of clawing and, and fighting your guys continuing to fight. I mean, at one point you had a three-game winning streak on uh, last year. Only a handful of games, you look at maybe Akron, Memphis, that, 
you got you were in other words you were pretty much in every game last year yeah and you know that's that's the encouraging part about it you know we lost to Kentucky but well we took Kentucky all the way down to the wire and he and he and coach Calipari couldn't take his starters out we played West Kentucky who had you know uh, NBA prospects on their team and it's a single digit game with you know three four minutes ago and we we battled with the teams in our league you know we had Belmont on the ropes uh in our own when we played him at home, and, and it comes down to one shot that Dylan Windler makes with 50 seconds to go for them to put us away. So we, we saw a lot of light into that season, and um, we, we called, and we had a couple games that we lost on last second shot. So that season could have easily been a 12-13 win season with the opportunity to finish in the top five. But, you know, that's kind of how the ball bounces sometimes. And you can never be too high or too low. If things are going great, you can't get all excited. Things are going bad. You can't uh, be too frustrated. So we just try to stay even killed through the, through the ups and the downs. Penny Collins is the head men's basketball coach at Tennessee State as he joins us here on the program. I, we mentioned sort of the veteran guys um, that you have. You went out and got some transfers. What's sort of been the biggest difference? Is that sort of the reason um, why you've been able to have such uh, the, the success so far? What, what's the biggest difference between now and last year? Um. Even though we had so many new guys, a lot of these guys are back. Uh, were here last year. You know, Mikey Littlejohn and Emmanuel Buddha were here. They actually played. But then Jalen Washington, Monty Jahal, and Carlos Marshall were sitting out and, and around the program all year. So that's five guys. They already kind of knew what the expectation level was for, for what I wanted to do. And then we added guys to have extreme character. And, and I just believe that if you got guys that are disciplined and, and, uh, and have that kind of character, then they'll be quicker to be disciplined and, and do exactly what you need them to do on the court. And then we, we've had a strenuous level of teaching them about how to go things the right way. We do PowerPoints and teach them on how to how to be a good team and what it means to be a good teammate. And to these guys, they've been sponges and, and they've been executing exactly what we've been teaching. And for you, how much fun are you having – you know, as the head men's basketball coach at Tennessee State, of course, you played in Belmont right there uh, in Nashville. A lot of success for you uh, in the city of Nashville and now uh, in your second season at Tennessee State. Oh, man, it's like a dream come true. Like, I, I, I love it at Tennessee State. Um, I, I have a lot of tradition here. I, I know about how rich the tradition is, is here. I'm from Nashville. My family's here. I actually have my dad on staff as a senior advisor. I mean, I'm, I'm literally living a dream come true right here at, at Tennessee State, and I just couldn't I couldn't wish for a better place to be to, to lead an institution to a place where they haven't been in a long time. He, he may be listening right now. Do you get a chance to talk to uh, Coach Alexander much? Oh, man, uh, yeah, all the time. Coach uh, obviously gave my first job as grad assistant here, and he was up here maybe last week sometime and, and took a practice in and uh, took some notes and talked to our guys a little bit. And, you know, me and Coach, we talk probably once a week. So, you know, I, I love him. And just appreciate everything he's done for my career, and he's he's a legendary coach. And then lastly, talk about, you know, we, we, we look at Murray State. Uh, you know, we want to look at, at Tennessee State now in terms of up and coming uh, or making its mark, if, if you will, this year uh, in the OVC. So talk to us about how tough OVC play is. I mean, it, it's, it's extremely tough. I think it's an underrated league. Uh, we have some extremely uh, well-coached teams, some some legendary coaches, and, you know, that's why you can't be too excited. I'm glad that we beat East Illinois and SIUE at home. That's great. But um, I've seen before teams get off to a hot start, and, and they can't sustain, sustain success. So that's one thing that we really try to build our program on is taking this thing one game at a time 
And all I'm worried about is uh, to try to figure out a way to beat a really good team on the road. And everybody, every night in this league, it's going to be a dogfight. And I'm, I'm just excited to have this challenge. Penny Collins in his second season as the head men's basketball coach at Tennessee State joins us here on From the Press Box to Press Row. The Tigers going to take on Southeast Missouri on Saturday on the road. Coach Collins, we appreciate the time. Continued success to you and the Tigers. I appreciate you, and thanks for having me on. And even though the Tigers coming off the loss to UT Martin uh, at UT Martin on Thursday, still 10-6 and six on the season, still in good good shape, really, in the OVC. And I like what, you know, Penny Collins has been able to do with this program. And it was a, it was a grind last year, only six wins in the OVC, nine wins overall. Uh, but again, he has the passion for it. He understands TSU uh, from a number of different perspectives. Number one, as an assistant coach um, at one time, number two, growing up in the city, number three, playing ball, uh, collegiate ball in the city of Nashville um, at Belmont. So, you know, uh, you know, he has he he understands. And, you know, I, again, to be able to to get like the the transfers and so forth to kind of come in to get more of a veteran team um, is huge. And I think, you know, I, I like where Tennessee State is. And again, if you look at, you know, some of the games, again, uh, 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 not a lot of cupcakes, meaning uh, situations where you're playing a lot of, you know, D3 teams. And I mean, yeah, they got they have some on the schedule, but I mean, to open the season up with a big win, uh, against Alabama A&M at home is pretty big. I mean, you got wins, um, you know, against Lipscomb. Um, so these are some nice, really some nice wins for uh, for the Tigers on the season. And so I think Penny Collins is definitely doing a solid job um, at Tennessee State. And again, Tennessee State is going to have one more opportunity uh, or another, I should say, opportunity to make things right at Southeast Missouri on Saturday and uh, again the Tigers looking to get back on the right track you're locked in to from the press box to press row I am your host Donald Ware we still got to get back uh, to some National Football League talk uh, with the hiring of coaches or the lack thereof uh, we're going to talk some NBA today here on the program. Uh, got some uh, some games in the National Football League um, this weekend. As a matter of fact, if we have time, we'll talk about some of those games uh, also. Again, as mentioned, up next here on From the Press Box to Press Row, we're going to be joined by Mike Wallace, the senior editor of Grind City Media, talking NBA. Let's talk some NBA here on From the Press Box to Press Row. My man, Mike Wallace, is the senior editor of Grind City Media. No stranger to the program. Uh, always willing to jump on and talk Grizzlies and NBA and all that kind of good stuff. Happy New Year to you, Mike. Hey, Happy New Year to you, too, man. 2020 is here, man. We, we, we're well into it now, and uh, I'm just happy to see what, what this new year is going to bring us, man. But I always love to be with you and, uh, and everything we do across the board, man. We do it, we do it well together and I love hooking up with you. Absolutely. Appreciate seeing, of course, you at the, at the celebration bowl. Um, let me start here, man. The Grizzlies, uh, right now, 16 and 22 uh, on the season. Um, your thoughts on where the Grizzlies are at this point? 
You know, I, I think this is a team that's gotten better every single month of the season, every single week, actually. Uh, when you talk about where they came into the season, the projections were, you know, 23-25 uh, type win team. And, you know, when you look at the fact that you're building this thing around, you know, four or five players that are within either 23 or younger or within their first three seasons in the NBA, uh, that's not necessarily a recipe for winning right away. That's a recipe for building and developing and, and, and growing. And, and frankly, Amarant has been ahead of schedule in terms of his development and maturity and his growth as a number two overall pick. Jaron Jackson Jr., uh, who was last year's number four overall pick, uh, is playing some of the most dynamic basketball that this league has seen at that power forward position. When you talk about his ability to, uh, the other night, he, uh, he was the first player in NBA history to make four, to make three threes or more while blocking three shots or more in the same game for three straight games. Wow. So um, that kind of dynamic is, is certainly uh, uh, shows how bright the future is. And, and frankly, the Grizzlies have won uh, 10 out of their last 16 games. I think they're in a stretch like that in the midst of the longest homestand uh, that they've had in four years. So this is definitely an opportunity for them to, uh, to, to keep moving forward. And uh, I, I like what I'm seeing, and the league is too. Yeah. Did you expect, I mean, I know we talked a lot last year, and, and obviously you didn't have, you know, Ja uh, and, you know, some young pieces, but did you expect them, like, I feel like the Grizzlies are playing some solid basketball right now. Did you expect them to be this solid this soon? Uh, they're certainly solid. And I think, uh, you know, I really didn't know what to expect from these guys because, you know, you're talking about, you know, shifting gears from what the core four and the grit and grind era, uh, what everyone knew about Zach Randolph and Tony Allen and Mark Gasol and Mike Conley, and basically on a fly. I mean, on the fly, basically. We're coming up in, you know, February is a few weeks away now, and February last year was when Mark Gasol was traded. So you're talking about basically a year since then, and the complete dynamic of this team and this outlook has changed. So for them to be playing the way they're playing, there's still some up and down, man. I mean, this is a team that on any given night can either come back from 20 or blow a 20-point lead. You know what I mean? And they've shown that. And, and, and we've seen some of the growth and, and, and some of the growing pains that come with that growth. And, you know, so for them to be where they are right now, you know, sort of knocking on the door uh, for one of the final playoff spots in the West, um, it, it's encouraging. But there's still, you know, a few games below 500. You know, you flip that record around, uh, then you're really talking about a team that's surprising guys, but they're they're progressing about to expectation, if not a little bit ahead of that. You know, obviously you uh, you look at uh, you know you sort of look around. Uh, we look around the league, and you look at uh, you know Davis in in Los Angeles uh, is fortunate not to have been injured uh, further than he ultimately was. You know, speak a, a little bit to that dynamic between him and LeBron, and then talk a little bit about why he decided uh, to ultimately decline uh, the Lakers' max offer. I mean, when you look at the dynamic that Anthony Davis is, this is the first time that, that LeBron James, um, yeah, I, I guess Kyrie Irving was, was just heading into his prime uh, when LeBron went back to Cleveland. Uh, Dwayne Wade was certainly on the tail end of his prime. Chris Bosh was was right around, you know, midway through his prime, but certainly not as dynamic as Anthony Davis. All things said, this is the most talented sidekick that LeBron James has ever played with uh, from the terms of how he plays, where he is in his career at this point, um, and, and what he can do. So, you know, the, the, the fact that that dynamic is there, it, it gives the Lakers a window where they can contend for championships for the next two, three years for sure. Now, the issue here 
with the injury is that, you know, Anthony Davis always goes down with something. I mean, he always comes back. I give him credit. It always seems to be worse than it is or not as bad as it seems when he first gets hurt. Uh, but he's always – he probably leads the league in a lot of categories, including heading back to the locker room in the middle of a game, yeah. you know, to get checked out. So, you know, I hope he's fine. Um, it sounds like he may miss a few games here or there. And, and, and you know, it, but, but he's in a situation where from a contractual standpoint, it really didn't benefit him to sign the extension right now. He's going to be an unrestricted free agent in the summer uh, where he can sign a five-year max contract. Uh, north of two hundred and something million dollars, mm-hmm. he can average about forty million dollars a year, as opposed to signing the extension right now and averaging uh, sort of in the mid thirties. Now, look, I know somewhere between mid thirties and forties isn't a lot of money for a guy like you, Donald. But, <laughs> but, but for most people, you know, you're talking about an extra, you know, uh, fifty-five million dollars over the course of over the life of the uh, contract. So it's just a prudent move for him to sit there. Uh, and, and keep his options open. And, and I fully expect if the Lakers get to the finals, Anthony Davis will be back. You don't normally just leave LeBron James in the middle of a run like that. So I think he'll end up re-signing if all things go well. Yeah. That's the voice of Mike Wallace, senior editor of Grind City Media, joins us here. I'm from the Press Box to Press Royce. We talk some NBA. Of course, Mike has been covering uh, the NBA for well over 15 years. Um, Indiana's playing, playing well. And, and, and Victor Oladipo set uh, perhaps to return. Uh, on January 29th, um, you know, talk about that, the dynamic of him coming back uh, as this team really, uh, if you look at last season up until now, has been able to sort of find its identity without him. Yeah, I mean, Victor Oladipo has been was playing really, really well before he got injured. And, and it's just unfortunate because I think finally, you know, sometimes it takes a while for guys to really find their fit in the place that, that that's best for them. You know, Oladipo was a was a top five pick when he when he was uh came out of uh Indiana after that one year at Damatha, you know, out there in, in, in the D C area and one of the things about him was that Orlando really wasn't a good fit for him because they didn't know how to use him. They didn't gonna be more of a point guard or a scoring guard. They didn't they weren't sure what they had yet. Um then he gets traded and goes to you know, goes to Oklahoma City and and, and sort of finds his way a little bit. I think he showed a little bit of what he can do. But I think it really took him going to Indiana, sort of back to his collegiate roots and that fan base, uh, sort of an unassuming market there uh, that just focuses on playing the right way, getting the right people around you, and giving you a chance to be successful. And shout out to Nate McMillan, man. He doesn't get enough credit yeah. nationally. He doesn't get enough uh, exposure nationally for the job that he's done, uh, taking over that, that, that team. And, and they're always right there. Uh, competing with some of the top teams in the East. And, you know, with Oladipo working his way back, this is a team that's almost just been waiting and willing uh, to make space for him. And I really love what, what Malcolm Brogdon talked about. He said, listen, man, we're, we're going to go through an adjustment, but that's going to be a good adjustment. And, and when you adjust to get a guy like Victor Oladipo, an all-star level type player, uh, we all need to step back and sacrifice parts of our games for the greater good of the team. And when you have a point guard and a mindset like that and an organization like that, it can only be successful. So you just hope that Oladipo can stay healthy and go right alongside those guys like Miles Turner and, you know, Sabonis is playing really well and they have some, some great role players up there as well too. Um, Indiana is going to be a treat to watch as they continue to develop and the victor can stay healthy. Yep. P- speaking of healthy, uh, Zion Williamson is is practicing now uh, with the Pelicans. We really didn't know, you know, what the timetable was in terms of when he may return. Prior to the season, it, you know, some reports said six weeks. Um, but but your thoughts in terms of um, 
are obviously the Pelicans are not going to rush him back, but sort of your thoughts or what are you hearing about when he may return? I mean, with Zion, it's, it's one of those situations where, you know, you, you, you hear a lot of conflicting reports coming out of, uh, out of the New Orleans area because, you know, the team is, is taking Aaron on the side of caution. Obviously, they're not getting overexcited or putting out a lot of information about the progress that he's making. They just, yes, he's out there. He's running up and down. NBA practices this time of year aren't too strenuous because really you rarely have days to practice. It's about recovery and getting guys their treatment and their rest. And so it's hard to get like a training camp style scrimmage for you to get in shape. So that's going to be uh, a process for, for, you know, when you talk about Zion and, and how, how many opportunities he has to get through a simulated scrimmage in a practice type situation before he's cleared to play. Um, I, you know, I, I do think he's on the closer end to coming back. I expect to see him before this month is up. Um, the Grizzlies, frankly, have two games against him where you have a chance in January to see Ja Morant, the number two pick against number one pick Zion Williamson, first of which is the MLK holiday game on January 20th, and then the Grizzlies go down to New Orleans uh, at the end of the month. I believe it's January 25th or something like that. So you have two opportunities for the number one and number two guys to be on the court for the first time uh, this season, and I think that's something the league can get excited about. But I also hope that it's the right time. And, and you want him to be right. Now, for everything that I'm hearing, you know, through league circles, is that his, his structurally everything is solid. Um, it's just a matter of getting him in the kind of shape that he needs to be in so he won't be laboring uh, through the process. You know, he's, he's missed two months, three months of the season. It's hard to come back in the middle of the season. But I think that there's so much anticipation about what he can bring and what he means that you have to give him a chance to see what he can do. This is not – you know, this is not Greg Oden. You know, this is not Joel Embiid who had the red shirt basically two years. You know, this isn't even, you know, when you go all the way back and look at, you know, Ben Simmons had to sit out for a minute. So, you know, this isn't that case from what I understand. This isn't a Blake Griffin situation who red shirted basically. This is a guy who had a minor procedure and they just want to err on the side of caution to make sure because of his size and physicality that they bring him back at the right time and in the right circumstances. Mike Wallace, the senior editor of Grind City Media, joins us here on the program. Mike, uh, you're, I know generally you've, you've, you know, as the season progresses, you have sort of an, an MVP. Who, who's your MVP of the league right now? The league, that's a great question, D. And, and you know, I think, I guess I got to give you the quick answer. Um, but but I, think, I think there are five or six candidates that, you know, if you told me pick one out of a hat and any of those six came up, I would be, you know what, you're absolutely right. And I think at first and foremost, you got to look at Giannis Antetokounmpo, the reigning MVP, and what he's doing with the Bucks. You know, sitting at the top of the uh, the East, uh, they had that long winning streak uh, earlier this season, 16 or so games in a row. Um, I, I will put him up top. You know, I think LeBron and Anthony Davis, you know, sort of split a vote there uh, when you look at those two. And then I think you go from there to a Luka Doncic uh, in terms of turning Dallas completely around. When he's on the floor, he's such a show uh, to watch that it's it's amazing to go through that. And then, you know, this is one that, that a lot of people aren't really talking about. But I do think when you look at what this guy means to his team, obviously James Harden is another guy that's in there. But I think when you look at what Nikola Jokic has done for Denver and how dangerous they can be when all things are going right for that team uh, as a triple-double type center, um, I, I think he may be the most valuable. He and James, when you talk about taking one player away from that team and that team goes back to the lottery or something, uh, Nikola Jokic is one of those players that gives you so much that I don't think he gets enough credit for being uh, in the MVP discussion. Nice. Check him out. 
uh, or follow him, I should say, on Twitter at MyMikeCheck. Check him out uh, online at GrindCityMedia.com. He is Mike Wallace. He joins us here to talk NBA on From the Press Box to Press Row. Mike, we appreciate the time, man, and we'll uh, catch up with you real soon. Hey, let's do it again real soon, man. Thanks a lot for having me. We'll do it, Mike. More of From the Press Box to Press Row on the other side. It's Donald Ware, host of From the Press Box to Press Row. The biggest names are guests on Box to Row. That is the voice of Kevin Durant. Oh, yeah, well, I'm just, you know, trying to get better every single day. You know, uh, we've been through a lot as a team, and I enjoy playing with a great group of guys. Hey, this is Ronda Rousey. This is Michael Vick. Hi, this is Layla Ali. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Skylar Diggins. Hey, it's Alex Morgan with the U.S. Women's Soccer Team. I'm talking about none other than Serena Williams. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you. That was definitely one of the better matches I've ever played. I've had it just like that. You know, I was really focused, and I was really um, ready and serious, just really, you know, excited. Missed any of these interviews? Then check us out online at www.BoxToRow.com. That's From the Press Box to Press Row, real, relevant, radio. It's Donald Ware from the press box to press row. Back to the National Football League and, of course, the lack of blackhead coaches, which I talked about in the first segment. I mean, you know, it, it, it in, a, in a way, when you look at HBCUs, it's sort of it's sort of I mean, because when you talk about there are a lot of really great coaches. OK, there are a lot of great coaches um, at HBCUs and a lot of. Um, HBCUs still send players to the National Football League. So the coaches must be doing something right, must be doing something right. So when you don't um, choose from that pool um, that you have, you talk about minority coaches, you talk about black coaches. I mean, where where more are you going to find them uh, in collegiate sports than at the HBCU level? You're marginalizing uh, HBCUs in a respect. But, you know, the brothers got it bad anyway. I mean, it's not just in the National Football League. Uh, you know, you can look at and, and, and in collegiate sports as a whole. I mean, how many. You know, how many brothers do you see that are doing other things? You know, how many ADs do you have that are, you know, that are black or uh, minority in collegiate sports? Uh, again, at the FBS level. I mean, how many how many ADs, um, uh, you know, do we have? You know, when you look at broadcasters, how many broadcasters um, do we have? You know, so I look at I look at a lot of these things and it's just, you know, you know, it's just really across the board. And it's really a shame um, that that we're still talking about these kind of things in 2020. I'm all for hiring the person you want or the person you think is best for the job. But if you're not selecting from the entire pool, then you're missing out on something. And again, that's across the board. And it's very disappointing, uh, quite frankly. And it's something uh, really has to be done 
um, about this. I mean, you, 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 you know, we talk, you know, you talk about, you know, 70s and 80s, you know, you talk about affirmative action. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Guess you know why? Because we didn't, we were excluded from those opportunities, you know, uh, uh, you know, like my, my grandfather, for instance, you know, couldn't have, didn't have the opportunities to do some of the things that he would have liked to do, perhaps, or some of the things that I am able uh, to do because of discrimination, uh, Jim Crow, etc. So affirmative action. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, you know, something's got to be we got to do something. You know, we're talking about this thing in 2020. And um, listen, we, we shouldn't be talking about this. But again, hire who you think the best candidate is. We, we shouldn't necessarily tag a color to that. But when you're not opening it up and opening your mind to a larger pool, then you do have a serious problem. And again, as I mentioned, I mean, let's not pretend that. Uh, part of the problem doesn't lie uh, at uh, the hills of college football and more specifically on the FBS level. Like, let, let's not pretend that that's not part of the problem. Um, you know, it's a, it's a shame that we're still talking about this. And, uh, you know, like, um, you know, again, I mean, but again, it's just it's a, it's across the board. Like, it's just it's one of those deals. That's uh, sort of across the board. We've been talking about this for quite some time. And you know what another travesty is? I'm going to tell you what another travesty is. Another travesty is if you're a black head coach and you aren't as successful maybe as um, you would like to be. Um, it's almost like one of those things where either you have success or you don't get another opportunity, uh, a la Leslie Frazier, at least to this point, where, again, at least in the one season, he helped to lead Minnesota to the playoffs. But I'm going to replay you. Like I said, we've been talking about this for a long time. It's been a, a topic of conversation for a long time. And, of course, on this program, we've been talking about it for a long time. Let me take you back to a February 2010 interview with Art Shell, the first black head coach in the modern-day National Football League. And uh, I asked him about not being able to get a second opportunity uh, in the National Football League. Were you disappointed not to have gotten another opportunity to, to in fact, be a head coach in the NFL? Uh, yes, I was. Um I thought I would get the opportunity because I'd had I had an opportunity. I would, you know, I had I had some success, so I felt the opportunity would come again. But if you, I remember thinking back, two years or the two years after I left the Raiders, Al called me back just before I hired Gruden, wanted me to talk about being the head coach again at that particular time. And I went and I interviewed, and um, he was at the crossroads of trying to make a decision between me and Gruden. I was doing well with with Kansas City. I was happy, and I just said to him, "I said, look, you 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 like Gruden? Go ahead and hire him. I think I think he'll do a good job for you." So, but still thinking that I'll eventually get a, get an opportunity elsewhere. But um, it didn't come about. I had a, a few interviews. Uh, I was even interviewed at a major college um, to do that, but uh, it just didn't come about. And then I started working in the National Football League. Commissioner Tagliabue called me and um, wanted me to come and, and do some work. He said, you don't need to be out, out of football after I left the Falcons. 
And um, so I did that, and I came here and worked in the league office. I started as as an appeals officer, and then I moved into the situation where the commissioner put me in as a um, senior vice president of football operations. So I was moving along pretty good. And then, of course, I made a dreaded decision, uh, probably the worst decision that I made in my athletic career, which was going back to the Raiders in um, 2006 and 2007. That was a bad, you know, that was for me, that was a bad decision. But I thought I did it for the right reason, which was to help the organization um, get back on track, and it just didn't work out. It unfortunately didn't work out for Art Shell the second time around, but, I mean, it's a couple of factors you have to look at. Number one, it was 12 years in between the last time he was a head coach uh, of the then Los Angeles Raiders in 94 till he became the head coach of the Oakland Raiders in 2006. His overall record, even when you include the 2006 Raiders, 56-52 and 52 as a head coach, very respectable. You take away that Oakland Raider record, and you're looking at a record of 54-38 and 38 as a head coach. Three playoff appearances for the Los Angeles Raiders in all winning seasons with the exception of one. That is a a solid record. And for him not to be able to be given that second chance, and I realized that the Raiders were trying to give him um, another chance, and uh, he ultimately said to go with Gruden. But, I mean, it, it should have been someone, my, my point of contention is that it should have been someone other than the Raiders giving him the opportunity to be a head coach. And that's part, that's another deal. If you're black and a head coach, you're on a short leash. So at the end of the day, if you don't have success, man, you're out of there. You know, you, you are, you know, Leslie Frazier, even, you know, to some degree, I look at a Raheem Morris. I think Morris benefited from the Rooney rule with Tampa Bay if my memory serves me correctly, one year in one of those years, and I think he only had three years, one of those years, Tampa was like 10 and six on the verge of the playoffs, you know, and he never got uh, another, never even sniffed another head coaching job. I think as a matter of fact, shortly thereafter, he became like the defensive back coach for the Redskins. Like, I don't even think he ever got another coordinator position. Also, by the way, um, when you look at it, um, Art Shell has a coaching tree, okay? Gunther Cunningham, Mike White, Jim Haslett, John Fox, Chuck Pagano, all coached under Art Shell. So, I mean, you know, that's just an example. But, again, when you're on a short lease, I, I mean, when you're black, you're on a short lease. You either, either have success or they're going to get rid of you. And the, 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 the likelihood of you being rehired. I mean, you look at a North Turner, like North Turner's had all kinds of opportunities to be a head coach. Hadn't been, hadn't been that successful as a great offensive coordinator, but as a head coach sucked yet, he got plenty of opportunities. So listen, you know, it's a bad situation. You know, we're in 2020 and we're still talking um, about these things, which I think is absolutely uh, ridiculous. Your thoughts. Hit me up via Twitter at Botchtoro, B-O-X-T-O-R-O-W. You can also hit me uh, on my personal e- uh, Twitter account at dware one Also on Facebook, B-O-X, the number two, R-O-W. Some sad, sad news, especially as it relates uh, in the world of HBCU sports. Roscoe Nance, uh, 
who began his career as a writer for the Clarion Ledger in Jackson, Mississippi, covered Jackson State, covered the SWAC before he went on uh, to be an NBA writer for USA Today for in excess of 30 years, passed away on Thursday. It was, uh, I tell you what, I'd uh, been, in, been in contact with Ross. As a matter of fact, he was doing a podcast. I was on his podcast like right prior to Christmas. I know he had been uh, sick. I had a chance to talk with him a little bit uh, on Christmas. Um, I texted him shortly. I told you uh, I told you all about the story of how I met or how I, I had a chance to meet David Stern. I told you about that story last week. It was because of Roscoe Nance. Um, and I texted him when David Stern passed away and said, hey, man, I'll never forget um, the fact that you uh, it was because of you that I had a chance to meet uh, David Stern. He texted me back. Well, you know, I called him on Monday and um, I, 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 there was no answer. And actually, uh, um, his uh, or actually his wife answered the phone um, and uh, indicated that he really um, just hadn't been up to really talking to uh, to anyone uh, as of late. Uh, and then I got a call from his number on Thursday and I answered the phone and I said, hey, man, how you getting along? And uh, it was his wife who had informed me that he had passed away uh, at 2.45 on Thursday. Sad day when you're talking about in HBCU sports. Sad day when you're talking about in the NBA. The man was very well respected, extremely well respected. He used to always call me Youngblood because I guess, you know, he wanted to let me know that, um, hey, yeah, you may be doing a couple of things now uh, as it relates to HBCU sports and so forth. But I've been doing this a long time. Graduated uh, from Tuskegee. So, man, I, I tell you what, we're going to I'm going to talk more about this next week. And he was on the show a couple of times. So I, and matter of fact, we had him on to talk about his career. So I'm going to replay part of some of those interviews uh, that we had with Roscoe Nance on next week passing away uh, on Thursday. Very, very sad. My time is about up. I thank you for yours. Thank you to Mike Wallace for joining us today here on From the Press Box to Press Row. Also to Penny Collins for joining us on the program as well. And always remember to support those that support you. From the Press Box to Press Row is presented by DW Communications. Come on, baby.